Welcome to the August 9th, 2018 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. What you just heard were some of the protest slogans that were chanted from the atrium of the Museum of Modern Art this past Monday. The action was part of a walkout by members of UAW Local 2110, the union that's been negotiating with the museum. We're going to be talking to two members of that union about what they're fighting for. And then we'll be chatting with Absara de Quinzio, curator of modern and contemporary art at the UC Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive, also known as BAMFA, about the Bay Area's evolving art scene and what she's been up to. But first, the protests. That was another chant visitors to MoMA encountered on Monday, when hundreds of museum workers walked out a few days before negotiations were about to resume. I invited two union members, Athena Holbrook, who's a collection specialist in the Media and Performance Art Department, and Chelsea Swillick, who's an administrative assistant at Visitor Engagement, to come to our studio and tell us about what's going on. What's the current state of negotiations at MoMA? The main issues that we're having right now are, I mean, predominantly the health care, our uh, step increases, which is our automatic raises every three, six, nine years, and um, just overall wage increases. And then also they want to extend uh, using temporary employees from six mm-hmm. months to a year after the new opening. So those have been our big hitters, this contract. And we've been in negotiations now since Mm -hmm. mid-April. Our contract expired on May 20th, so we've been working without a contract for, I believe, something around 80 days now. Um, And that's uh, that's kind of where we're at. In this situation, we've specifically been dealing with wages not only for every kind of year cost of living wages, but also our um, kind of seniority raises that come when we've been in our positions for three, six, and nine years, um, respectively, kind of getting a little a bump in our uh, salary because our wages as, you know, art and culture workers mm-hmm. tend to be low in general. You know, as an example, the lowest uh, group in our union makes under $35,000 a year. Uh, full-time. And the median salary um, for members in our union is about $54,000 a year. So so wages obviously are a huge issue for our membership um, and healthcare as well. Just to give a a brief history of the past couple of years, um, in 2015, when we were negotiating a new contract, um, healthcare was the major sticking point. And the museum in order to kind of alleviate some of their costs for healthcare, we agreed to to share some of that burden. And now we're asking for relief because our costs have risen significantly. Right. Um, and we're uh, we're being met with a lot of resistance there. They, they don't want to kind of go back to the bargaining table with us on any of that, so. Wow, and how long have you been in the union, Athena? I've been, uh, I started working at MoMA in, uh, in 2015, so three and a half years, and Chelsea has been here. I've been here for about six years. I started in uh, 2012. And so now, do you think these negotiations have been very different from previous ones? Yes, definitely. I think last the last time, three years ago, we were dealing mostly with the health care. That was our huge issue. Um, it was really grueling. Actually, the first party on the pavement happened last year during Party in the Garden. So, you know, we're mimicking that this year. But again, like the it, it has changed in the sense that like 
of course, they're not going to the table about health care, but they are going after our wages, which ultimately affects because our prices for health care have risen significantly. So now who is part of this union? Because, you know, it's sort of from the outside, it's a little confusing. Yeah, so our union is the Professional and Administrative Staff Association, PASTA, um, and we represent curators, conservators, um, visitor engagement staff, retail workers, archivists, librarians, registrars, editors. Um, just it's a really broad range of workers at MoMA who are doing a lot of the behind-the-scenes work that kind of makes the museum function. Our you know exhibitions, we're planning those. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in the bookstore. We're you know selling merchandise, making the museum money. We're helping visitors as they come, like enjoy their experience. Yep. We really, I think, are a, a huge part of how the museum operates. What do you think people misconstrue about these negotiations? So I think something that um, that Maida Rosenstein, the president of our of our local 2110, has said is there's a slogan they used in the 2000 strike at MoMA: "You can't eat prestige." And I think this is really key for art workers all throughout New York. Um, the idea that oftentimes, as art and, and cultural workers, we're expected to kind of sacrifice for the work that we're doing for the art, and we are passionate about art. We're passionate about what we do. We love our jobs and. And often are willing to make these sacrifices, but we shouldn't have to. I mean, I think it's a specific culture within the art world, right? Like, you know, like you go to school for, you know, your undergrad and then you go for your master's and then you get an internship and you're barely paid. You know, like for instance, our um, curatorial assistants, it's a temporary position for only four years. They don't get paid enough. They work overtime and they're expected, you know, then to just be like dropped into the world. And like this is just like some jumping point for them to go out there. Um, So I think it's been this like strange culture within the art community, especially in New York, that it's something that you have to already have like a level of privilege to access. So now, Chelsea, what do you think? Why is this negotiation been particularly difficult? I think this negotiation has been difficult because it's really hard to have a museum who's going through a huge renovation, like who has raised so much money in order to like create hundreds this, of millions, hundreds of, of millions of dollars to like create this brand new building, and they're there sitting across the table from us, telling us that like you know, they can't give us more than, you know, this much over a five-year period or that our step increases are just like an additional raise. I mean, it's really frustrating because to them, it's numbers on a paper where for us, like, I mean, these are our paychecks that we receive every week. And like, you know, this is all my colleagues' real lives and not just some abstract idea that, you know, they have of how the next fiscal year is going to go about. In the case of these uh, curatorial assistants, mm-hmm. the four-year has been really, like, how long has the four-year rule been in place? Well, this is what's funny is it's not actually a rule. And this mm. speaks to what Chelsea was saying about this kind of culture that's been built into, I think, the art world in general, but also at MoMA. So curatorial assistants don't have to be termed after four years. In, in our contract, they can be promoted to assistant curator or they could be kept on as curatorial assistants. Mm. But it's become kind of part of the culture at MoMA to terminate them after four years. And this idea that it's like like a fellowship or like they're kind of moving on or 
you know, graduating from this uh, this experience um, to go out into the world, as Chelsea said, and kind of find new opportunity. And I think I think this kind of mindset is very much built in these days to to the art world and this idea of like you know young workers and their disposable labor. And and it's it's really unfortunate because you know even though they're in the union and they do have many of the protections that the other union members have, they can be fired without just cause after four years. Oh, wow. And so now what is the general mood around uh, the members of the union in the museum? I mean, surprisingly, it's been pretty good. Um, You know, there's only nine of us in the rooms and sometimes like we can get into each other's heads, but we have meetings with our members regularly. And it's just always so wonderful because you tell them these things and you can see them like flare up and like get angry. And it's kind of fun to like watch them like get involved in the same way. And I think especially the action that happened on Monday, I mean, walking into the gun lobby and seeing hundreds of your coworkers standing on the stairs waiting for you to come join them and like chant was really like a powerful moment. It was great. I mean, I I was astounded that we got so many people to sing Solidarity Forever together yeah. in the lobby. It was really a powerful moment and I think um I think people have been waiting for months now to kind of have this this release because we're all really frustrated and mm-hmm. it you know we have this building opening next year and we're putting in a lot of time and a lot of work to get this ha- you know to make this happen and it's very difficult to expend so much of your energy and your passion when you feel like you're not being treated fairly Chelsea how many members are in the union I think there's about 260 Right and what is the full staff of MoMA generally Around 800 Oh, so it's quite significant. Chunk yes, of that. it's a huge. Yeah, we we cover most departments. And now, what are the demographics of that? You know, knowing like arts organizations, I'm guessing they're predominantly women. Yeah, it is predominantly women. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and is there a sense of like different ages, different ethnicity? I mean, is it a very diverse group? I'm just kind of curious. I think like with all arts institutions, and this goes back to what we were just talking about earlier about privilege Mm -hmm. um, and wages being very much related to lack of diversity in arts institutions. And I think Mm -hmm. there is a huge room for improvement um, at, you know, at MoMA and across the art world. And I think a barrier to that is the fact that we have low wages. So tell us about negotiations this week. Is there anything you can tell us? Yes. You know, we went in there. At this point, we all know each other pretty well. At at first, it was a little tough, but, you know, we stood our ground and we kind of had a little bit of relief. They have come back, I mean, contingent on the, you know, the ending result and the, the contract. They have withdrawn one of their most offensive proposals of eliminating or drastically reducing our step increases. And also um, membership commissions for the visitor engagement department specifically. So that kind of just gave us some breathing room because we felt very stifled and stuck in a situation that we were, it was very bare bones for us about giving up what we were holding on to. So that gives me hope. And, you know, I think we have a lot more room to, to actually negotiate now. That was Athena Holbrook and Chelsea Swillick of MoMA's UAW Local 2110. Hyperallergic reached out to MoMA after Monday's walkout, and they responded with the following statement. We continue to make progress with Local 2110 at the bargaining table. It's been a productive process, and we're confident we'll arrive at an amicable resolution, as we have during prior negotiations with Local 2110 and our four other unions. 
MoMA's extraordinary staff are the best in the world, and we are committed to reaching a contract with Local 2110 reflecting that. And now for some headlines. A project honoring 34,361 refugees and migrants who passed away while trying to reach the United Kingdom has been destroyed. On Wednesday, August 1st, the Liverpool Biennial announced that the list installation by artist Banu Chinatoglu was removed by unauthorized persons unaffiliated with the arts festival. The local city's council says they're not to blame for the removal either. On Twitter, the Biennial asked for those with any knowledge related to the work's disappearance to come forward. And British art magazine, The Double Negative, responded via tweet that people in suits spotted doing some of it apparently, an eyewitness told us last week. 224 works of art in the British parliamentary collection have gone missing. The parliament has accumulated a collection of over 9,000 works since 1841. Authorities are blaming database errors for the unaccounted for paintings, illustrations, etchings, prints, and cartoons, but they can't be sure if the artworks were stolen either. The remains of a Roman library has been unearthed by archaeologists in Cologne, Germany. It's assumed to be the earliest public library in present-day Germany. It's reported that the massive building is up to 2,000 years old, and likely held up to 20,000 scrolls. Cartoonist Avi Katz was fired from the Jerusalem Report, which is owned by the Jerusalem Post newspaper, over a drawing comparing Israeli leader Benjamin Netanyahu to the dictatorial pigs of George Orwell's allegorical novel Animal Farm. The Jerusalem Post defended its decision saying, freedom of speech has limits. Katz told the Forward newspaper that usually the Jerusalem Report has complete editorial independence, but in this case, the bosses from the Jerusalem Post apparently were in touch with the editor of the report and said to stop using my work in the future, he told the newspaper. In response, Chaim Watzman, a writer for the Jerusalem Report, whose short stories regularly featured Katz's illustrations, resigned in protest. Now, anyone who visits museums knows merchandising has become the name of the game for institutions who wish to catch in on the steady stream of visitors eager for a memento from their visit. Well, the trend towards commercialization marches on as the Vans Shoe Company has announced a collaboration with the Van Gogh Museum to produce a collection of their signature sneakers featuring paintings by the post-impressionist. While in London, British bedmaker Savoir Beds has unveiled their National Gallery collection for those who want to indulge in their favorite older modern master in the bedroom. But the latter doesn't come cheap. While the Van Gogh vans, yep, exactly, will set you back 65 to $75, if you want to sleep with Claude Monet's Water Lily's Setting Sun from 1907, it'll cost you roughly 29,000 pounds or $37,000. The latest products are just one more step down the path of complete museum commercialization, which already includes Keith Haring diaper bags, 
Hokusai smartphone cases, Warhol everything. I mean, what's next? Rachel White read coffins? Paul McCarthy once said this really interesting quote about the Bay Area, which has sort of stuck with me over the years. Um, But if I can remember it, it was something along the lines of, you know, ideas are formed in the Bay Area. They're packaged and branded in L.A. and then they're bought and sold in New York. Apsara de Quinzio admits that might be an oversimplification, but it does illuminate how important California Bay Area is to the art ecosystem in the United States. She was in New York this week, and I invited her to Hyperallergic HQ to talk about Banffa, as the Berkeley Art Museum is known. We started our conversation talking generally about the area's art community, and I was eager to hear her take. Well, I think the Bay Area is an incredible place to live and work. Um, I think it's often defined or described by its microclimates. And I think that that's an apt term to think about the art scene in the Bay Area, because there's a lot of scenes or things that are happening in the Bay Area, but they're all kind of dispersed. And how about the Berkeley Museum in particular? I'm really proud of the work we've been doing, our programming, the exhibitions we've been doing. I think um, we're conscientiously incredibly diverse in our programming. Um, You know, we just wrote into our strategic plan that our programming would manifest 50% women and 50% men over the next five years. And that was something that was... So that was a conscious decision. That was a conscious decision. It was really... um, And where did that come from? I'm curious. Where is it? The director? Is it the curators? I mean, where is that? Where did that initial push come from? The community? Yeah, that was all of us sitting down together talking about the strategic plan and... um, You know, I'm so happy that I have a director who's willing to really embrace that and take that forward. So why do you think other institutions don't do that? That is a very good question. I think we should all be doing that at this point um, and really thinking about that and how we can bring these new strategies 50-50, you know, into the institution in in new ways and, and really test ourselves to see if we can do it. Our conversation turned to the Matrix program. An exhibition program that began at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in 1974 and migrated with the then director, Jim Elliott, who moved to Bamfa and created one for that institution. The program at Berkeley has generated an incredible 270 exhibitions since 1978. I asked her about her current Matrix exhibition that features Alicia McCarthy and Ruby Neri, two artists associated with the influential Mission School that began in San Francisco in the early 1990s. I've worked with Alicia a little bit before, um, but I hadn't had the chance to work with Ruby directly. And I really wanted to see what their work would look like together Mm -hmm. now. Their last two-person exhibition was in 2004, I think. And um, so that's, you know, over a decade ago. And I really wanted to bring their work together again, you know, Ruby's making these really incredible monumental ceramic vessels that have um, very sort of erotic or sexualized imagery of women, mm-hmm. and some of them are are mod. Some of them are painted. Mm-hmm. The women are painted around the vessels in 
a kind of crude manner that almost recalls de Kooning, very painterly. And then some of them are kind of molded and shaped um, in a very sculptural fashion so that the hands become the arms of the vessel. And she's really blending the traditional forms of the ceramic medium with the female figure. So juxtaposing that with Alicia's paintings, which are, are very murals? abstract. Are they murals or are they paintings? There is one site-specific painting, which you could call a mural, that Alicia made in the space. And then the rest are discrete canvases. I just love part. when Alicia's work sort of fills the space. You know, it just sort of really takes it over. She has this beautiful line that she uses yeah. um, throughout. Yeah, and and the line, I think, this sort of graffitied rough hewn line is what I think really unites their work in mm -hmm. an interesting way. And even Ruby and Alicia were both very pleased with the results. Well, there was a moment there where the mission school had this huge sort of footprint in terms of its influence, and it still is influential, of course. I'm kind of curious, what do you think the legacy has? Been? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely emblematic of a certain period in San Francisco, the early 90s primarily. You know, this was before the first boom mm -hmm. in 2000. Um, you know, artists were living and working not just in the mission, but all over San Francisco. And there was a certain group of artists that I think their work sort of resonated together. They didn't all know each other at mm -hmm. the time, so that's a little bit of a misnomer. It, I think sometimes it's painted as this group of people who all knew each other and were working together from the start, whereas that really wasn't the case. It was more dispersed than that. And who gave it the name, the Mission School? Who was the first person to use that Yeah, term? that was um, a critic, Glenn Helfand, who, who's great, still lives in San Francisco. And he wrote an article in the Bay Guardian, and he sort of coined the term. And he was one of the first people to really describe this and, mm -hmm. and try to think through what this phenomenon was. But um, Alicia and Ruby, for instance, who are associated with the Mission School, you know, they met in uh, 1990 and were going to SFAI together. And so they became close friends and have, you know, sought inspiration in each other's work since then and maintained a, a close friendship and artistic dialogue with one another. And they were really united by Bay Area figurative artists such mm. as um, Joan Brown, Richard Shaw, and then Jay DeFeo, who's not necessarily a yeah. Bay Area figurative artist, but they were... But definitely an icon of the Bay Area. For sure, yeah. They were all very much inspired by that. And so I think you kind of have the roots of the Mission School in, you know, the funk scene, in Bay Area figurative art, in, you know, handmade materials. It's a kind of lo-fi aesthetic um, in many ways. I mean, I know that the the mission school, a lot of the mission school artists, I shouldn't say all of them, were, um, you know, really came out of the AIDS epidemic, too, and were thinking through the, the AIDS crisis in San Francisco. So there were a lot of social issues that were connected to it, activism, mm -hmm. uh, you know, LGBTQ communities. And so that was really important to them, as well as, you know, a kind of freedom that they were all kind of looking for in, in um, the aesthetics that they were developing. And what should she like people to know about the Bay Area art scenes? I would love for people to know that there are a lot of really talented artists. Working. And they're not all leaving. 
they're not all leaving. I mean, it is a challenge. Don't get me wrong. I think that that's a challenge that all of us face, not just artists. You know, gentrification is a very real thing. Cost of living is a very real challenge in San Francisco. But, you know, I think we all sort of figure it out. You know, we try to find ways to stay. And I know a lot of artists who are doing that. For instance, you know, patrons are getting creative in the Bay Area. I was recently a jury on the jury for the TOSA Award, which is an important new model for art patronage, I think, which involves giving an artist a studio for a year, paying for the rent of that studio mm-hmm. over the course of the year and then giving them an additional stipend over that, the course of that year. So that's an effort to try and help artists create a sustainable structure. That's um, great. Who's supporting that? That was created by two patrons, um, Bill Goodman and Victoria Belko. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really important new model. I also wanted to ask her about the Bay Area art world's relationship to Silicon Valley which has become synonymous with the region, of course, since it's one of the most powerful industries today. Just this week, it was announced that Apple, which is headquartered in the South Bay, became the first trillion dollar company in history. I think the disrupt culture is something that we're all sort of coming to grips with right now. We don't really know the impact of that. I mean, I see a lot of that actually in our political environment Right. right now. And, and I'm not sure that it's a good thing. Um, well, but I mean, I think we used to use disrupt in a positive way. Now you're like, maybe not I'm so not positive. I'm so sure it's yeah. positive. Yeah, but then you think about the notion of, of like a disrupt culture in relation to the avant-garde. And, and you see these kinds of parallels, too. And I don't know. It just it has me questioning a lot right now, I would say. I have to say that even question for me what the avant-garde actually was mm-hmm. in a way, too, because you sort of like, oh, this, you know, sometimes in rarefied spaces, something may feel progressive or, or mm-hmm. positive. But then you're like in the general public, you're like, well, these things can be very destructive. Yeah, I mean, I think the notion of progressive is actually a really interesting subject to delve into, too, because, I mean, I don't think progress exists, you know, and I think especially in the face of environmentalism um, and global warming, you know, the notion of progress becomes really obsolete. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, like, what does it mean to be progressive that's a really good question. I think we're kind of reevaluating that too, mm-hmm. I would argue. So now that leads me to something I've been talking about with friends a lot recently is, is the art world really as liberal and progressive as people like to think it is? What would you answer? Because I'm going to say no, it's never been that way. You know, because I think particularly when I got into this field, people keep telling you this and you look around and you're like, not really, not really. It kind of, there's the veneer and we are, people are patting themselves on the back, but what, what do you think? I think progressives like to think of themselves as progressive, and therein lies a problem. I'll Got just it. leave it at that. Wow, that was deep. <laughs> well, thank you, Upsara. That was a lovely talking to you about this and getting a little bit of news from Berkeley. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. That's Upsara DeQuinzio, Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art at the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archives in Berkeley, California. 
This week, I want to send a special thanks to Hellraiser for providing the music to this week's episode. And in case if you're wondering, that's razor as in shaving razor. I'm Harag Vartanian, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.